Cormac Smith joins us now to help us make some, well, some sense of what's going on uh, with Russia, Ukraine, and in particular the South African angle. But Cormac, just, just by way of background, I'm talking to you in the UK. Yes, I'm based in central London. I'm an Irishman, but I've lived in this great country for 34 years. And um, for nearly two decades of my time here, um, I worked for British government, both local and central government. And much of that or the recent uh, time has been spent in Ukraine. Well, yes, I spent two years in Ukraine as a British diplomat between 2016 and 2018. And I was effectively, I guess, I was I was loaned to the Ukrainian foreign minister as part of Britain's ongoing support for Ukraine in its journey to democratize and to deal with corruption and to, you know, Ukraine, like South Africa in many ways, is a very, very young state. You know, it's only 31 years old, 92 percent of the population having voted for independence from Russia in 1991 after the breakup of the Soviet Union. So like all new states, they deal with lots and lots of issues. Unfortunately, Ukraine has one more issue. It has the worst neighbor in the world who invaded Ukraine eight years ago with the illegal annexation of Crimea and further invaded Donbass in the east. And the reason they did that really goes to the heart of what is happening today. There was a popular revolution known as the uh, Revolution of Dignity or the Maidan Revolution, because it centered around Maidan Square in Kyiv, the capital. And that was in protest for a corrupt and autocratic president who had been democratically elected in 2010, but turned out to be very corrupt, very autocratic. And when the people clearly wanted to move to the West and towards democracy, decided um, pretty well on his own that um, he would not sign an association agreement with the European Union and would instead sign an agreement to um, form closer economic ties with the Russian Federation. The response to that back in late 2013 was a student protest. The government at the time under Yanukovych sent out a special police force known as the Berkut, who no longer exist, and they brutally beat the students. I have heard um, stories of iron bars being used instead of their, in place of their normal batons. Somebody said to me in Ukraine, there's one thing you don't do, you don't touch our children. Many, many people told me that in the two years I was there. Within days, hundreds of thousands of people had taken to the streets of major cities, Kiev in particular, which was the heart of the revolution. That revolution lasted for over 100 days, 102 days, I think. In the end, Yanukovych tried bringing in what I believe were Russian special forces snipers who took up positions on the high rooftops and buildings around the square, and they murdered. They shot with sniper rifles over 100 who have gone into almost folklore as the heavenly 100, and there's a, there's a very moving wall commemorating them just be, or just off Maidan Square in, um, um, in Kiev to this day with, a, with every single person, you know, named and what they did and what age they were and so forth and on what particular day they were shot. So that popular revolution effectively brought down the Yanukovych regime. Yanukovych fled to Russia where he still lives in exile. The Ukrainians put a democratic government in its place. As we're talking in South Africa, and I I know there is sympathy for Russia in South Africa, it's important to note that the, the Russian myth, the Russian lie, 
false narrative that this was a Western-backed coup against a, um, a, you know, a democratically elected leader is completely false. And it put in place a Nazi regime backed by the states. It was a popular revolution. It was Europe's last great popular revolution where the people, millions of the people, spontaneously took the streets. And in my time, I probably had thousands of conversations with both expats and more so Ukrainians who were actually there on the Maidan throughout the revolution and told me very visceral, heartfelt stories of what it was all about. But this was more than Putin could stomach. So Putin creates lies. And in Russia, we have to remember, we have a country... We have a regime that lies on an industrial scale, and they use those lies strategically as part of their hybrid war strategy. And that's a hybrid war, actually, that um, Russia has been waging against Ukraine for eight years, but also against the rest of the West. And a hybrid war includes not just conventional violence, which has obviously been visited in just horrific degrees on the Ukrainian people at the moment, but cyber attacks, interference in elections, assassination attempts, and, you know, the vilest of um, propaganda spewed out from, uh, I use the word, vomitoriums like Orti, Russia Today, and Sputnik, and the thousands of poisonous little keyboard jockeys who the Russian state employ to uh, drip their poison all across the um, internet. And what we have to remember about these lies is, unlike the old Soviet Union, they do not form a coherent narrative. All they intend to do is to sow um, confusion and division and discord in, in the West. It's, a, it's very much a divide, part of a divide and conquer strategy. Cormac, why, why do the Russian people tolerate this then if it is such a concerted effort and so full of lies do they just not know what's going on well you know i had this i had a long conversation on only saturday night with one of my closest friends in ukraine who is a very senior diplomat we worked very closely in the two years that i was there and you know i was you know he was saying that this is this is not just putin this is a large part of the russian people and in fact he sent me a statistic this morning that 69% of the Russian people support the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But it's important to remember, just as, just as Russia has a massive lying machine as part of its propaganda, as part of its hybrid war toolkit, it also has an iron grip on communication with its own people. Now, a number of things. I, there was a big piece of research when I was out in Ukraine um, carried out by the, in partnership by the Estonians and the Ukrainians that looked at how the West was depicted in Russian media. And one of the things that came out of this, apart from being fed a constant um, um, diet of false narratives and lies about how about how corrupt the West was, how the West was a threat to Russia, how the West was decadent, and everything, everything bad that Russia was not, Russia being good, apart from being fed that constant diet of lies, and I could, I could send you the research if you want to have a look at it. It estimated 95% of the Russian people get no news from outside the Russian Federation. And in Russia, 
the media. The media is controlled almost absolutely. At the time of this, 95% of broadcast media was controlled, not by the state, effectively by one man, because that is the absolute total and control that Putin has. Now, that was then. We've seen now even more draconian laws. In the last few days, we have seen the last liberal, if you like, radio station in um, Russia closed down. We have seen a new law rammed through the Duma only last Friday, whereas anybody who contradicts the state narrative faces up to 15 years in prison. They are not being told that they have um, that they have invaded Ukraine. They've been told it's a special military operation. The word invasion is not allowed to be used. They are being told if they if they get any pictures of bombed out schools and buildings. By the way, um, as of this morning, the Russians have bombed 215 schools in Ukraine, plus lots of hospitals and and other buildings. But if they see this, they are told that no, the Ukrainians are doing this themselves. They are told that Ukraine is, needs to be denazified, that it is a Nazi state. And obviously, with the history of the Soviet Union, the term, the, the Nazi term is particularly, is particularly toxic. Well, it's a Nazi state where the far right have never managed to gain more than 2% in a general election. Actually, you know what? I lied to you. In the 2019 general election, the far right grouped together in a coalition and they achieved 2 0.15% of the vote. They achieved no seats in the Rada, that is the Ukrainian parliament. Whereas on the other hand, Volodymyr Zelensky, this man who has emerged as the greatest leader on the world stage, I don't want a ride, I want ammo when the Americans offered to get him to safety. He is a Jew. He is a Jew of Russian origin who lost multiple family members in the Holocaust. At one time, after he came in, Ukraine was the only country outside the state of Israel to have a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister. And large numbers of the cabinet of ministers are also Jewish. And there have been surveys carried out when I was there in 2017, 2018, that actually showed that of all the former communist and Eastern European countries, Ukraine was the least anti-Semitic and the most welcoming to the Jewish tradition. Some Nazi state... But the good news is I think most of the world is beginning to catch on to the toxic lies that Russia tells. But to answer your question, it's not just the lies that the Russian people are fed and the fact that they don't get their news from anywhere else. And remember, television is hugely important in Russia because the poorer people of whom there are many and the older people only listen to television. So it is... It, it, it is a complete suppression of any of anything that comes from the outside, along with a diet a, um, a diet of of constant lies and false narratives that paints one particular picture. Here's something that's very interesting, and it's you know things. There are signs that things will change, no matter how much. Putin tries to repress the Russian people. Russia came out a few days ago and they admitted, which was amazing in itself, that they have lost nearly 500 troops in the first 10 days of the invasion. And that was seen in the West as amazing that they would even admit that. According to the latest figures I have, according to the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, and also now being reported in the New York Times, and various people saying, Russia are taking huge losses. 
The estimate from the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense being reported in the New York Times is they have lost 11,000 men in 11 days. Let's put that in context. That's 1,000 a day. In Afghanistan, when the Soviets went in for nine and a half years from 79 to 89, they lost 15,000 in nine and a half years. About four a day, between four and five a day. They're losing over 1,000 a day. In. They underestimated a number of things. They underestimated the massive support across the globe, with a few exceptions. And I think there's, you know, questions to be answered in in South Africa. And I think the South, actually, I think the good South African people really have the question to answer. You know, a people that fought against the iniquity and the evil of apartheid only a very short few years ago. And a young and a young country which still has its issues that it is grappling to deal with should have maybe a little bit more empathy and sympathy with the plight of Ukraine today. Cormac, what's happening on the ground in Ukraine? Clearly, you have many contacts there. You are well tuned in as well. On the one hand, it appeared as though Putin was expecting a blitzkrieg. On the other hand, the conscripts that we hear about, they certainly don't have the stomach for killing women and children. And also now under the impression that what should have been a very quick and clean victory and a welcoming population is is quite the opposite. But what is the feedback that you're getting on the ground? Lots and lots of stories of prisoners of war being taken, um, whole units sometimes surrendering completely demoralized, badly led, badly fed, looting supermarkets because their their supply lines and their logistics are breaking down. But young kids basically saying they thought they were on a training exercise. Um, and the Ukrainians are being very smart from everything I can tell and from the, fa- from the fact that I lived among them for two years and worked at the heart of their government and actually worked with five ministries, including the Ministry of Defense in my time there and the fact that I'm speaking to senior people on a daily basis. Yes, there's fog of war, and there may be, if they say 11,000, it might be only 9,000, or it might be 14,000, because there's fog of war. But these are their best estimates. But we're also hearing stories of prisoners of war who are young conscripts who have no stomach for the war. They are badly led. They, can, they, they haven't been told what they're really doing. They're ringing their mothers, and they're, they're being given phones by their captors. And everything I've heard is they are being treated as prisoners of war under the, under the Geneva Convention. The, the, there's just too many stories coming through for it not to be true of how some of these kids just didn't know where they were going. They don't have the stomach for the fight. So that's one thing. The other thing, so many people have said to me, this must be, I stopped counting after 50 interviews. And so many people have said to me, Cormac, are you surprised with, with how things have gone and the resistance? I said, no, not at all. I've been telling anybody would listen that these were the toughest people I have ever come across in my life. Also, the warmest and the most welcoming were people that I fell in love with, apart from making friends for life. But if you look at their history for the last hundred years and how they have been abused and how genocide has been inflicted on them more than once, the Holodomor in 1932 and 1933, where Stalin wiped out up to 10 million Ukrainians. And then by both the Nazis and the Bolsheviks during the Second World War, where they lost more, Ukraine lost more people than any other country on the globe. 
more than Russia, more than Japan, more than America, more than Britain, more than any other country. And that's often forgotten because we think of the sacrifice that the Soviet Union made. Well, Ukraine was the jewel in the crown of the Soviet Union. It was only one of 15 states, but it accounted for some 40% of industrial output. So two things to get back to really get back to this, two things for forget about the lies of denazification, forget about the lies that it's about Ukraine being a threat to Russia or joining NATO, and forget about the lies that they were carrying out genocide in um, Donbass against Russian speakers because there's no evidence for any of this, and it, it's just completely not true. Why, you know, Putin has a pathological hatred of the Ukrainian people because they dared to choose freedom and to choose democracy. So yes, he wants Ukraine back for the um, wealth that it entails, because he does want to put the old Soviet empire back together to a certain extent. And he has said the breakup of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. Think of all the horrible things happened in the 20th century, and think what a ridiculous thing that is to say alone. But... The thing that he fears most and why this invasion is happening, he fears nothing more than a successful, democratic and free Ukraine on his doorstep. Because that will you ask the question about the Russian people, no matter how much he tries to control the message and communication, he can't keep the truth out from the Russian people forever. And we know there are thousands being arrested now who are... Um, who are um, and peace protesters. What he fears is a free democratic Ukraine. And he has a pathological hatred for the Ukrainian people, which is why we use the term genocidal, because he has said Ukraine has no right to exist. And his foreign minister has said Ukraine has no right to sovereignty. How do you see this all playing out? We, what, 12 days now into uh, the war. Some are saying it's going to be a very long war, a guerrilla war, that Putin will win through sheer force of, of numbers, but the Ukrainians continue to surprise everybody with their fierce resistance. But but having lived amongst these people who you clearly admire, how do you see it all ending? I can't answer that question because there are sm- there are wiser and more experienced men and women in this field than me who can't answer that question. I'll make one prediction and then I'll make another few comments. My one prediction is Putin will not win and he will never have Ukraine. And I've made this prediction before, but my great fear, my great fear is how many tens of thousands, maybe more Ukrainians will have to die to keep their to keep their freedom and to prevent this evil, psychopathic, criminal thug from having their country. I, I said in the very first days of the invasion that things clearly were not going his way. And my fear was that he would that he would resort to far more indiscriminate, actually discriminate, because it's very deliberate, attacks. So, and indeed, that is exactly what he did, because that's how bullies behave when they're faced with somebody that stands up to them. Um, so, you know, the... Um, if, you know, if we look at our history, you know, Russia has won wars by just throwing just endless resources into the meat grinder. And clearly he's willing to do that because he has no, just as he has no compunction in, 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 in murdering tens and thousands of innocent people in Syria or in Chechnya, he certainly has no compunction with murdering tens of thousands of innocent Ukrainians. Ukraine will continue to put up a 
fierce fight and will continue to take a huge toll on Russia. But I don't believe without our support and without the support of the West standing in to do more than we are already doing, I think it will end very, very badly for Ukraine in the short term. So it's very, very simple. We have been imposing sanctions. They're not enough. They're not enough. They're still not enough. We have been arming the Ukrainians, no one more so than the Brits. We led the charge before Christmas in getting them, in particular, these anti-tank weapons and so forth. They need more and they need it faster. They need air. They need air defense and they need jets, which they're now being promised. But it's over a year. It's over a week since the EU promised that just they haven't got those jets yet. They need them now. But actually, that is the least. They also they need some form of a no-fly zone. And so far, NATO is saying it's a non-starter. Yeah, it's a, because this could lead to an escalation. There are other people calling for well, a no-fly zone does not have to be NATO. It can be a group of non-aligned. Um, 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 countries under under an EU ma- under sorry a UN mandate under the duty to protect. So the the laws and the structures are there, and all of these things are being looked at. But we need to do more because this is not just a war on Ukraine. This will not stop with Ukraine. This is a war on a way of life. It's a war on democracy, and they will he will continue if he gets away with it to move into other countries, be it Poland or the Baltic states, and the people in these countries are very nervous, and they have been for a long time. Just to close off so, with, if you were to talk to a South African who is dubious, who says, this is a partner of ours in BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, mm-hmm. China, South Africa, although the B, Brazil, voted with the, the people who condemned the invasion, even though the other members mm-hmm. of BRICS didn't. What would your argument be to a, a man in the street in Johannesburg, who at the moment is feeling, because of historical perhaps links and ties where the Soviet Union supported the, the liberation forces in this country, that, it's, uh, that, that Putin's the guy to back in all of this. How, how would you disabuse him of, of that notion? I don't know whether I would be speaking to a man or a woman of faith, but um, hear me out. This is, and many people have said this, this is the... Yes, there's been, you know, there's been horrible deeds and what I, you know, I refer to as evil. I believe in the existence of absolute evil in our world. And there have been, there have been deeds of absolute evil carried out in countries across the world, including in South Africa, and still, as we know. But in terms of an absolute, in terms of an absolute black and white, in terms of an absolute war of between good and evil, we have not seen anything like what is happening in Ukraine today since 1939 to 1945, when that was something different about Nazism, when six million Jews were exterminated and everything else that that regime did. This is the first time since then that we have seen something as diabolical contained within within one man and within one regime, the current Kremlin regime. And the way they are prosecuting this completely unjustified war against a peace-loving, democratic people, where to date 1.5 million Ukrainians have crossed the border into Europe as refugees. It's already been called the biggest refugee crisis since the Second World War. Three of them are friends of mine, the, the, the wife, daughter, the wife and the wife's 
daughter and her mother spent three days driving to get from Kiev to Lviv. They spoke to me yesterday. They were in Lviv. You know, for what it's worth, I said, look, I don't know where you're going. They don't know where they're going yet. I said, well, get to London. You've got a home in London. These are people that a few days ago, I mean, were running businesses and, 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 and you know, final year in university and had, and that's just, there are, we don't know how many hundreds or thousands of innocent people have been killed. They broke the ceasefire twice for people trying to get out of Mariupol. I mean, the, the behavior, they have used many, many weapons, which are cluster bombs and so forth, were banned under the Geneva Convention. I mean, this is, I could go on, but this is, this is black and white. There is no argument about this. This is pure, pure evil. So South Africa can either sit on the fence or be on the right side of history. There is no, there is no, there is no gray area in this. And I would appeal, I would appeal to the good people of, South Africa, having gone through the huge trauma that your country went through with, and I'm thinking of the, I'm thinking of apartheid in particular, which for me, and maybe not everybody listening will agree with me, but for me, apartheid was one of the greatest evils on the face of the earth when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s, and my parents drilled this into me in Ireland, and my school teachers drilled it into me in Ireland, and so forth. It was an absolute evil that was perpetrated against the majority of the people of South Africa by a, by a minority. So having, having had that in your very recent past, and I know there are still many social ills in South Africa as a young country which you know, struggles to develop, but having, having, having had that experience and that very, very visceral feeling of what freedom is really about, you know, where I live in the West, people talk about freedom. They don't know they're born. They don't know they're born. They talk about freedom of speech and this and Brexit is freedom and everything else. They don't know they're born. When I went to Ukraine, I met people that really knew what freedom was about because they knew what it was not to have freedom and they knew what it was to spend 100 years fighting and dying for freedom. It was very, very different. It was just, it was absolutely visceral. This is, this is something which goes way beyond goes way beyond domestic relations or trade relations or BRICS or anything else. It's what side of the fence are you on? Are you right? Do you want to be right or do you want to be wrong? Because there are very, very few questions, you know, in human life that are so monochromatic. They're black and white. It's right and wrong. It's good and evil. And what I see looking in from the outside and from what little research I've managed to do is South Africa is at best sitting on the fence at the moment. There is no sitting on the fence. Sit on the fence or be on the right side of history. Because sitting on the fence here, you're on the wrong side of history.